Hello, and welcome to episode three of our podcast, Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, your host, and if you've Listen to the prior two podcasts, you know, that we were talking about kind of the factual background behind the Camarena case. And we're moving into uh, some new areas today. And we're going to start with talking about my new book. And this isn't just a promotion for my book, um, though if people want to buy it, that's okay too. Uh, but the book really is where we turn from talking about the factual background to the Camarena case to really looking at the more recent allegations, the conspiracy theories, the outlandish stories regarding the case, and really try to analyze what happened, what makes sense, what doesn't, and things of that nature. Um, so what I'm going to do today is I want to talk um, a little bit about me, as boring as that might seem. Um, a little bit about the book and really talking about how the book came about and then focus on kind of the four or five big conspiracy theories um, or maybe just theories. Let's not call them conspiracy theories just yet that are in uh, considered in the book. And then that sets us up for next week to really start talking in depth about some very specific examples and some issues, including but not limited to, uh, especially next week, talking directly about the Amazon Prime docu-series, if you will, The Last Narc, and specifically talking about some of the charges and claims made by Hector Barreas. So that's where we've been, where we're going. Let's go back to where we are. And again, uh, the book's name is Someone Had to Die. You have to read the book to see why I came up with, with that name. But I think it's helpful for you to understand out of my background and how the book came about. And then we'll talk about the the, the theories in there. Um, and again, that sets us up to really start talking about things next week. So my short background is that I, I grew up in Montrose, Colorado, very small town, graduated in 1982. When I was there, and I don't doubt that it's much different now, uh, but I grew up in in Mayberry. Very little bad ever happened. Everybody was nice. Things were wonderful, you know, uh, pretty conservative I remember, you know, the Eagles were heretical because Don Henley had an afro. <laughs> so those sorts of things. But that, uh, be that as it may, uh, I then went to undergrad at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Also pretty, pretty generic, pretty benign, uh, a nice, safe place to be. Went to law school at the University of Minnesota. And in my second year... Uh, I went out to Los Angeles as a summer associate at a mid-sized law firm by the name of Mitchell Silverberg and Nup. As luck would have it for me, uh, I went out there at a time when the firm was beginning to represent Ruben Zuno Arce in his first trial. And if you remember, we talked a little bit last week about Ruben, and Ruben had been 
or was the owner, depending on the version you want to believe, and, and we'll talk about that in weeks to come. But Ruben was associated with 881 Lope de Vega, which is where, <coughs> excuse me, which is where uh, Camarena was taken and interrogated when he was picked up. Ruben was also the brother-in-law of the former president of Mexico. So anyways, I ended up um, working, again, almost by happenstance on Zuno 1. I attended a number of the trial um, proceedings in Zuno 1 during that uh, summer associate period. Uh, as a side note, I remember distinctly a couple of days or several days sitting very, very close to Juan Mata Ballesteros, um, who never looked my way, never said a word, never did anything, and completely and totally intimidated this uh, this kid from Colorado. So um, Zuno 1 goes on. I go back to law school. Ruben loses Zuno 1. The case goes up on appeal, and during that intervening period, I finish my third year of law school, graduate, move to Los Angeles, and start working on Zuno. So I was uh, in the courtroom um, during Zuno 2, worked on all the, you know, the prep and everything else throughout the entirety of Zuno 2. We had an amazing team. It was really four lawyers, um, in, especially in the second trial, that worked on things. Um, my mentor was Ed Medvine, who um, to this day is the uh, the most honorable lawyer I've ever met. And uh, I, I, I reflect on the lessons he taught me um, often, even though I didn't really realize a lot of them until years later, as, as we sometimes do. Uh, Zuno 2 goes in until uh, December 16, 1992 is, is when the jury went out. We ended up losing that case as well. I worked on all of the appeals um, for the next several years on the case, all of which were uh, denied and sometime in the late 90s, I kind of stopped working for Mr. Zuno and his uh, his team had shifted a little bit. Shortly after that, I was contacted by some lawyers who were working for a uh, Mexican national who wanted to put together some information on the case and worked on that for a couple of years and then uh, pretty much stopped. So really worked on Zuno in one way, shape, or form through almost all of the 90s. And then for the next 15, 20 years, every time I moved, I had about 10 boxes of books and documents and papers that I kept moving around and wasn't really sure why I did, but I couldn't quite throw them away. So then we can fast forward to, uh, what, 2018? or so, which is when Narcos Mexico came out, and I, of course, sat down, watched uh, season one, two, three, um, really was focused on season one and, and season two, and started to really think about the, the case again, and, and it was a case that you could never really get away from, because there were just so many unanswered questions, and things that didn't make sense, 
And, you know, we talk about a lot of them. We've mentioned some of them earlier, but, you know, you, you, you can start with just simple things. Like if Caro Quintero really picked up Camarena because he was mad that the DA was doing a good job at finding his fields, you know, why did they, why did they tape record it? And if the answer is they tape recorded it because Mexican officials wanted to, to know what Camarena said, then why were those officials alleged to have been at the interrogation itself? Um, you know, just lots of things. The jigsaw puzzle just didn't quite fit together. And so I'd always thought about the case. So Narcos Mexico comes out. I watched the first season in particular, and I start pulling out some things. And one of the first things I did is I reread Elaine Shannon's Desperados, which is really the, you know, the the formative document on on the uh, the traffickers and the and the Camarena case. Uh, and about that time, I also pulled out and reread Jaime Kirkendall's book. And as you know, Jaime was the resident agent in charge of the Guadalajara office. And, uh, you know, for all practical purposes, uh, he was uh, Camarena's boss and, uh, and, and Camarena's friend. So I, I reread that and started thinking a little bit more about the case and started pulling some stuff out. Different things happen and it, that kind of gets set aside. And then the last NARC comes out. And I sat down, read the last narc, um, or watched the last narc. Excuse me. Ended up reading the book too, and um, had some significant issues, for lack of a better way of saying it, with the narrative being told. And I'm not going to go into a ton of detail at the moment because that's what next week is going to be. We're really going to dive into the last narc. Uh. In response to the last arc, a couple of different things happened. Um, I was contacted by some some attorneys to assist on uh, a matter relating to that case. And I spoke to a couple of DEA agents, former DEA agents, who had um, relevant knowledge of the case. And at about that time, um, after maybe a week or two of investigation, I decided I was going to write a book. And uh, I... I know the the exact moment that I said, all right, I'm going to try to do this. Keeping in mind that I'd never written a book of any kind before and really wasn't sure what it was going to look like or how it was going to work or, frankly, if I could do it. The book itself started off, as you can imagine, as a straight nonfiction book. And I started working on it, compiling uh, documents and data. And as I mentioned last week, um, I've had the great fortune of being able to interview a number of of witnesses, a number of former DEA agents, some traffickers, uh, some uh, some journalists who were involved in, in aspects of the case, uh, some CIA operatives. So lot, did lots of, of talking to people and just trying to gather information. The other thing I did is I tried to gather as many documents as I possibly could. And as I think I noted last week in my or on my website, uh, com, we have compiled most of those documents. And I think 
it's fair to say, and I'm almost 100% certain that we have the largest collection of relevant documents anywhere outside of the uh, the DEA office itself. I, I will note if you go to to the website, uh, we're still working on kind of categorizing the documents, making it look a little bit prettier, but they are there. So I started going and, and creating this nonfiction book. And at some point, uh, my mindset changed a little bit. And a, a couple of things happened. One is I, I just, I didn't want it to be another, um, I don't want to say dull, but just a straightforward uh, nonfiction story. Um, and and it seemed to me at some point that using a fictional narrative to kind of tell the story of investigating the case and to put myself kind of into the body of somebody else who was trying to take the case from today, you know, so not looking back, not with my background, but taking it today and saying, okay, if I was going to investigate the case now, what would I do? What would I look at? How would I look at it? And uh, so we I proceeded to kind of do that and and really had a couple of, of goals in mind. One was obviously not to make it boring. Um, and, and so I tried to create a, a narrative that's interesting and compelling. Uh, number two is to make it, the characters completely fictional. And I will say with absolute certainty that of the four or five major characters in the book, not one of them is based on a real person. Now, uh, you know, are there elements of, of people in all of them. I'm sure that's the case. I, I don't think there's any way I could done, have done it without. But there is not a one-to-one correlation in any way, shape, or form between the major characters and real people. Most importantly, from my vantage point, is what I did was try to p- apply some academic rigor to the investigation and to say, okay, if there's allegation A, what support is there for allegation A? It's not enough to get on YouTube and say, you know, Joe Schmuck says A, and therefore A has to be true. We also have to be able to investigate A and say, is there anything else that supports A? You know, do do the journalistic, uh, you know, where you have to have more than one source. You know, can we look at people who are making allegations in 2021 and look back at what they said in 1991 and get an idea of whether or not those allegations are true or find other ways to uh, analyze the veracity of the allegations being made today. And so that's really what I tried to do. Again, academic rigor. Let's really understand the investigation, understand the facts, Try to draw some conclusions, but also give the reader an opportunity to draw contrary conclusions and do it in a somewhat exciting, interesting, uh, compelling sort of way. I will say there are two major events in the book that are completely fiction. Those will be incredibly obvious to anybody reading uh, the book. And so I won't talk about those now. But what I can say is if you read the book and any place in there it says 
There's a document that says. There's a witness that says. There's testimony that said. I promise you, in every single case, we have that. And we have it largely on the website. We have it in other places. Um, And those facts are the nonfiction element of this creative nonfiction book. So we end up with the the book. It, it was published on March 8th, available everywhere. And we really look at five main uh, theories, allegations, stories, etc. Uh, and, and the first is the last narc and the allegations of, of Hector Berea's uh, his witnesses, Manny Medrano, the AUSA in charge of the, the case during the Zuno trials, uh, and frankly try to dissect it and analyze in detail a lot of the allegations. Um, and I'm going to say this again next week. Um, when we talk more specifically about Agent Berea's, but the my book, my research, my narrative is not anti-Hector. My book, my research, my narrative is pro-truth. And, uh, you know, I started off really with no agenda. And the characters in the book start off with no agenda other than figuring out what the, the truth is. And... Uh, you know, if in looking at the last narc, we end up disagreeing with Agent Perez on a number of points, uh, so be it. But again, it, it's not it's not a personal vendetta uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and and by the way, if anybody knows Agent Perez, or if he happens to be listening, he is welcome on this podcast at any time. Standing open invitation. I will note um, that we talk uh, a little bit in the last arc about um, Mr. Medrano. Uh, I uh, I have some some strong personal feelings uh, with some of the things he said, and a couple things I'll mention later. Um, that one, uh, if you read the book, you may you may come to the conclusion that the the portions of the book. Uh, analyzing things that Mr. Medrano said in the last NARC are a little more personal than some of the other analysis. And and there's no doubt that is absolutely true. So that's the first thing that we really investigate. Um, The second thing is we talk about the CIA in general, and we look in great detail at what the CIA was doing at that time, what the allegations are regarding the CIA and we try to to not only apply some, as I said earlier, some academic rigor and really look what was going on, but we also try to apply a little bit of common sense. Uh, so, for example, if the CIA was so concerned about keeping something quiet, you know, their activities with the the traffickers, they were so concerned about it. And so worried if someone like Camarena had 
stumbled across it or figured out what was going on. It was so important to them. Would they really have been in a position where they wanted to pick up Camarena so that dozens, if not hundreds of agents from the United States flow into Mexico literally the next day and start picking apart every single thing that Camarena had ever done, looking at everything in order to try to find him? To you know, we're going to go into that in great detail, but that's some of the the concept that that we try to pursue here. You know, let's let's look at the evidence, let's look at the documents, let's look at the witnesses, and then let's also try to be smart about this and common sense and think about it. So we talk about the last narc, we talk about the CIA, we also talk a lot about Felix Rodriguez, who obviously is directly connected to the the CIA issue. As we've talked about previously, you know, Felix Rodriguez is well known. Uh, He was a a Cuban national who fled Cuba after the revolution. He was involved in the Bay of Pigs. He worked with the Americans in uh, Vietnam. He uh, was the one who captured Che Guevara. May have been the one who killed Che Guevara, or at least was the one who gave the order for him to be killed. And there's no doubt that Felix worked on behalf of the American government in connection with the uh, the Contras and the arming of the Contras and the training of the Contras. What's not clear, of course, is whether or not Felix was involved in Camarena's abduction. Uh, if he was, why he would have been what his connection to the traffickers might have been. Um, You know, is he just going to show up at the house in Lope de Vega and flash a badge and be led into Caro's house? You know, how, how would that all work? Uh, And so we're going to delve into that. And and I, as a preview, I will tell you that, um, that we have some pretty good information on where Felix might have been, during the time that Camarena was was interrogated at Lope de Vega and some pretty good information on what the DEA currently thinks with respect to the allegations regarding Mr. Rodriguez. So that's number three. Number four is we're going to, we look a lot at the two Zuno trials. And if you remember from the discussions earlier, you know, we end up with a weird situation. We have a situation where in Zuno one, The government puts on a very specific case. They have one major witness, that being Hector Cervantes Santos. Santos, or Cervantes, sorry. He um, gets discredited during that period after a new trial had been ordered. A second trial is presented by the government that in many, many respects is markedly different than the first trial. Cervantes doesn't testify at all, and instead the government has two new witnesses, uh, Rene Lopez Romero and Jorge Godoy. And we look at Lopez Romero and Godoy in great detail. We look at when they first started talking to the government and its timing with respect to both the appeal and to the work on discrediting Cervantes. Um. 
And we then use that to analyze their testimony, their assertions, their allegations, their memories as presented in the last NARC. We also talk about Dr. Alvarez Machine, who was a co-defendant in the Zuno 2 trial. As you'll remember, Dr. Alvarez was essentially kidnapped off the streets of Guadalajara, taken to El Paso, dumped off of a plane, and put on trial. You know, his case is incredibly well-known in legal circles, uh, especially international law, because his case went to the U.S. Supreme Court twice, and um, there's some interesting law based on his cases on you know, kind of extraterritorial renditions and um, damages and those sorts of things. What's interesting, of course, about Dr. Machine, and I know technically it's Dr. Alvarez, uh, for whatever reason, when uh, the case was going on, everybody referred to him as Dr. Machine. So I slip into that on occasion. But um, the doctor was alleged to have been at Lope de Vega and alleged to have given medication to to a Camarena to try and keep him alive and conscious while he's being interrogated. We're going to we'll talk later in the book talks a lot about Dr. Machine, but a couple of things that are interesting to note when he was brought to the US and first presented to Agent Bereas, the DEA 6 report makes it sound like he was happy as heck to be there and explained exactly what had happened, said, yes, he had been at Lope de Vega. No, there was another doctor there who was administering to Camarena. He left, et cetera, but really wasn't trying to hide things. I'll note one thing in, in, important with respect to Dr. Machine. At the end of the government's case, he was granted a directed verdict by Judge Rafiti and ultimately released and uh, sent back to Mexico without having to put on a defense. And one of the reasons he was released and granted that directed verdict is there was no specific evidence presented against him. Um, there was inferential evidence, but nothing directly linking him. And if you watch the last narc, there's the scene of Mr. Medrano graphically showing how Dr. Machine stabbed Cameron in the heart with a lidocaine to keep him alive. Uh, and again, we'll talk about it more in coming weeks, but that portion just incensed me because how in the world can you make that allegation, make that claim be so demonstrative when it was something that was not proven in court when you had the chance? Um, also have a little bit of annoyance as an aside with Mr. Medrano in The Last Narc where he says, you know, let me be clear, there was ample evidence to convict Ruben Zuno Arce, or however he refers to Ruben. Um, and, and I think when we're all done with this analysis in a couple more weeks, and after you read the book, there may have been ample evidence. I'm not sure there was ample good evidence. I'm not sure there was ample evidence that should have been taken as real. Um, but we'll talk about that later. 
the last major um, theory addressed also comes from the last NARC, and it is the allegation that Jaime Kirkendall was on the take, that he had taken money uh, from the traffickers, that traffickers had marched into the American consulate and given him a briefcase with money, and that he had something to do with Camarena's abduction, whether it was that he gave the traffickers knowledge of where Camarena was going to be or whether he pointed out Camarena to the traffickers or you know whatever the case may be, that somehow he was involved in that. And we're going to dive into that allegation as well, um, and we'll do that in subsequent weeks. So... That's a 30-minute recap of who I am, why I care about this case, um, why I think I have something to share, and then what we're going to look at in the next couple weeks. So I want to give you a real quick preview before we end this, this episode. So next week, we're going to talk specifically about the last NARC and Hector Brea's, and we're going to have... Um, our first top 10 list, which is the first um, our first of many, but it's going to be the top 10 fallacies presented in uh, The Last Narc. So that should be a lot of fun. We're probably going to have a guest um, appear on that episode, somebody who spent a lot of time investigating the camera in a case. Um, and like I say, we'll talk about these fallacies. And then looking forward, we're going to look a lot more at um, the CIA's role. I think we're going to have a, a special guest there who's going to talk about kind of the role of the CIA. We're then going to have um, another episode talk about Godoy Lopez and Ramon Lira. Um, Godoy Lopez Romero and Ramon Lira, sorry, uh, in specific detail. We're also going to spend a little bit of time about Jaime Kirkendall and then later on, we have a, a former DE agent who's going to come on and talk to us about how the fractionalization of the traffickers and the drug trafficking industry in Mexico after Felix was arrested and um, no longer could kind of control things, but how that fractionalization has led to the current cartel system and the, the cartel violence that we see. So that's going to wrap up this episode. If you like this episode, if you like the the broadcast, uh, the podcast, please tell other people. Please send comments. Uh, you can reach me on uh, at my website www.jacklewellen.com um, or at uh, llewellynwriting at gmail.com. We'd love to hear comments, suggest suggestions. Bitches, moans, gripes, complaints, anything you want to share, anything you want to talk about, I'm more than happy to. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week when we talk more about The Last Narc.